Welcome to Almost Awakened. I'm your host, Bill Real. We explore human development here, spirituality, psychedelics, sexuality, and more. Our aim? Equipping you with tools for a fulfilling post-religious life. This is Almost Awakened. Welcome, folks, to another episode of the Almost Awakened podcast. I'm your host, Bill Real. I've got my friend here, Natasha Helfer. How are you doing today, Natasha? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, Bill. This is going to be a fun conversation. I was just telling you before we started, folks who listen to this podcast will, will know this, but uh, the previous six conversations that we've had similar to this uh, setup where folks can sort of pick the questions that resonate with them, uh, there's a lot of overlap, and I'm, I, which is good because they're fine for them. They're uh, sharing their unique answers. But as I try to express the question and share some of my own insights, I noticed that I'm starting to repeat myself. So I want to uh, I want to make sure that doesn't happen. And you made it really easy because you picked a ton of questions that have not been asked before. And a lot of them in the realm of sexuality, which you have a lot of expertise in. Uh, and I'll give you a moment here to to share a little bit of a kind of a bio of yourself. But um, it's a fun topic for me. You, you heard the intro to our show. It's one of the topics that I love, sex, drugs. And instead of rock and roll, I always say reggae. But um, I, I'm really excited to have a conversation where we talk about some of the taboo things going on in, in humans and things we sort of stay away from in proper society. But uh, all of us are really wanting advice on and thoughts on so that we can figure out how to be a better human. So thank you. I love it. Well, you know, I can talk about sex all all day, all weekend, yeah. all month yeah. long. So there we I go. Love it. <laughs> Excellent. Well, we're going to do at least, a, at least an hour and a half or so of this. So uh, let's start off, uh, share a brief bio of yourself. Give us, uh, for folks, most folks are going to know who you are in this space, but uh, for folks who don't, share who you are and what your expertise is. Okay, sure. Um, so I, by trade, am a marriage and family therapist, and I've been doing that work for 27 years, Bill. It's almost 30 mm -hmm. years. I start feeling like, oh my gosh, that makes me a little bit on the older side of things. <laughs> so Anyway, um, that's an ex existential crisis of its own. <laughs> but about 15 years ago, I decided to further my education and become a certified sex therapist through the association ASECT, which is the American Association for Sexual Educators, Counselors, and Therapists. It's really the only um, governing board here in the United States, I'm not sure about worldwide, that, that has a criteria for training in regards to sex therapy. Um, Although you can get emphasis uh, in sexuality in different degrees in the country, you cannot go and get like a PhD necessarily in any accredited university that I'm aware of, except for me, Widener, um, on sex therapy, which says a lot about our country and it says a lot about funding and it says a lot about taboos. So anyway, um, I grew up uh, in the... Um, Latter-day Saint slash Mormon community. Uh, my parents were converts to the church. I remember the missionaries coming to my door when I was about five years old. So I, I have memories of all of that process. And um, I, I primarily work in that intersection of religion and mental health and sexuality. Um, I have worked mostly within the LDS Mormon clientele, but also I've lived in a lot of places like mainly in the Midwest. I worked with a lot of evangelicals. My mother's from Argentina, so I'm a white Latina, so I speak Spanish fluently, so I work with a lot of Catholic Hispanics. Um, so that intersection, right? And that's really what drew me to sex therapy was all the issues I started seeing coming up in regards to, sexu to sexuality. Um, 
let's see, I'm a supervisor for sex therapy. I have written two small books, one around sex and one around mixed faith marriages. I was recently excommunicated by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints um, in April of 2021 for my sexual advocacy role within the community, um, mainly for three reasons that they stated. One was my support of gay marriage and gay rights, LGBTQ rights. Um, the other one was for my normalization of masturbation as normative human behavior. And the third one was around uh, how we kind of consider sexual media issues, pornography issues, and my stances against um, the ideas that, you know, that there's porn or sex addiction, which is not a clinical, clinically effective way it's not a clinical correct way or effective way to treat issues around sexuality. So um, that's me. I run a group practice called Symmetry Solutions. I live here now in Salt Lake City. I am recently also divorced. All of that was happening at the time that I was getting excommunicated. So um, I feel like my father died. I wrote like a little poem. It's like my father died about three three years before my my divorce. And then um, my divorce happened and then excommunication happened. So I felt like all these patriarchies left my life, um, not because I wanted them to. I was desperately clinging on to all of my patriarchies. <laughs> and yet, uh, yeah, they they let me go. And so that's been an interesting kind of part of my both spiritual and emotional and relational journey as well. I love all of that. And I think uh, your background is going to set up what I think is going to be a beautiful conversation here. And I want to I want to start off. I, I I'm in these uh, friend groups where all of us, having stepped away from organized religion, we we sense like, oh, like it really controlled our ability to be our authentic self, to be vulnerable. And you step away from this this you know, particular religious system, and you hang out with friends, and all of a sudden, you're having all of these really deep, vulnerable conversations about what your individual life looks like compared to what their life looks like. Full transparency, full vulnerability isn't isn't real. Even with your best friends, even with your partner, you sort of hide little pieces of yourself, even in the best of relationships. And uh, I'm just curious what your thoughts are kind of at the intersection of vulnerability and personal growth in terms of, and you can answer it however you want, but in my mind, I'm thinking sort of that battle of how vulnerable do you choose to be versus you know respecting other people's needs for not getting all of you and maybe they can't handle that or you think they can't handle that and the fears of shame and all those things that go into uh, I think the complexities of trying to be your authentic self yeah I mean authentic self is a construct right in of itself um having come from like half of me is Latin and half of me is you know, Germanic English heritage on my dad's side. Um, I, I have this very keen awareness that culturally we value different things. And here in the United States, we definitely value individualism, right? The individual um, and many of our ideas about health, even mental health, physical health are, are influenced by that value, you know, self-reliance, um, self-individuation, picking yourself up by the bootstraps, you know, heading off into the wild, wild west, whatever those things 
are. Whereas a lot of other cultures are, are much more communal, you know, and that idea of the individuals is not very supported. I mean, health is really seen through a community focus and being part of a, a group or a family, a clan, a tribe, you know, whatever those, those languages are. And so the values are very different. And at the end of the day, I mean, from a from kind of a scientific or an evolutionary theory perspective, we are pack animals, right? We don't we don't survive on our own. Every time I hear kind of these myths pop up in my in my practice of like, well, I I, I need to figure out how to love myself before I can love anybody else, or I need to figure out how to how to take care of my own mental health before I can be with anybody else. And I'm like, what island is everybody going to to figure themselves out? Like we don't do that on our own. We do that in relationship with other people. Even if you're picking up a self-help book by yourself in your living room, you are integrating ideas from another person. And, and that book has been written usually with a lot of cultural and, you know, group dynamics that that person has been affected by. So it's a little bit of a myth. I think this idea of authenticity Um, and in my work with Lisa Diamond from here in the university of Utah, she's, um, a great author of, she started off with sexual fluidity, you know, many years ago in the nineties, we're writing a book about that, you know, kind of how our sexuality isn't as fixed as we might think. And um, anyway, she talks about how our, our systems are wired to survive first and foremost. And, um, and we need groups to survive. We need other people to survive. We're an animal that takes a long time to develop. You know, we really can't be independent until almost our 20s and these days that's even hard sometimes <laughs> and so um and so authenticity is going to be way down on the on the scales of needs versus i need this group to support me i need my pack to feed me right i need my my group to support my education or whatever those things are today but if you did not belong to the pack or you if you were ill and injured and the pack couldn't carry you with you you were left behind. So authenticity is not something that is hardwired in us. Uh, although we do know that um, from a wellness perspective, mental health perspective, we do better individually when we can be authentic and when we can be ourselves, but also not so much if your group doesn't support you in that. So for example, with LGBTQ folks, if they're going to come out, some of our biggest uh, advice is make sure you already have somebody who you know will support you before you come out to the people that may not. Yeah. I'm just, I want to hit on what you said there in the second. So I a hundred percent agree with uh, the setup of the answer on the front end that, that it is just a arbitrary construct, sort of this idea that we can be fully authentic or, or that we don't have to compromise parts of ourselves for the group because we are, uh, as you said, pack animals uh, sort of like wolves. I just watched a documentary last night on wolves and, Humans and wolves, the reason wolves became dogs was because humans and wolves hunted sort of similar. Uh, We were pack animals sort of similar, and uh, it just meshed really well. But as you're pointing out in the last half of the answer, which is there is a piece of our well-being that is deeply hurt. Resentment maybe grows. Um, We feel like we don't really belong when we compromise parts of ourselves to the point where we sort of intuitively gather that – that we're having to pretend to be somebody else for other people to like us, for us to fit in. And that gets old after a while. And so there comes a point where 
you sense like, oh, it's really, it's worth some loss at some point to be myself. And you almost have to kind of test it first, right? You, you lean into it and you're like, oh, like this feels good. When I get to uh, find people who accept more of me than, than the group I came from that told me I had to fit in this box to, to belong. Uh, and you really, you don't belong, you fit in. And once you really start belonging, like, hey guys, here's a little more of who I am. And people go like, oh, I like that. And you're different than me. And that's cool. Um, there does seem to be a need to get some degree of authenticity as well to, to be yourself. Any, any thoughts on how to, how to negotiate that? Cause you're right. We have to compromise parts of ourselves in every group dynamic. And we ought to fight for some degree of being who we are so that we can feel content and happy and have well-being in our own inner self. Yeah. I mean, these are such complex concepts because even as you're starting to, to talk, I'm like, I think this is a, I mean, I'm not a historian, right? So historians can correct me if I'm wrong, but um, I, I do believe this is a fairly new value, you know, in the last like 200 years or maybe since the industrial revolution, because so much of our energy as humans was just on survival that I don't know that we have the, the lifespan one, neither the time nor energy to really be concerned about some of these issues you're talking about. Yeah. So I think, yeah. And even in certain parts of the world today, you know, there's, there's things happening in certain parts of the world today that probably this is not the number one, um, care, you know, or concern of people. So yeah, when we have more time to sit around and we don't have to be chopping wood to make sure that we survive the winter, um, we have more time to philosophize and to consider things. And, you know, the philosophers that we all think of, like Plato and, you know, those kinds of people, they usually had time to philosophize because yeah. they were taken care of by their community, right, as a group. So um Anyway, having said all that, <laughs> I think, and even what you said in regards to, oh, you find these new people who appreciate- Which, by the way, part of the position we're in, we're sort of privileged to have some financial backing to be able to sit and have conversations that then prompt the community to think through deeper questions. Yeah, for sure. For anyway. sure. Yeah, ab absolutely. Um so my point was, yeah, when you said people will sit around with each other and appreciate each other's differences, those people you're sitting around with, for the most part, are not that different from you. <laughs> you know? so that has been shown over and over again. So we either stay with, with the group that we're part of because either we need to or they do offer the belonging and the, you know, the, the wellness that because that, not all groups that you come from uh, don't accept, you know, there's there's differences in how groups differentiate, right? And some, some groups are more enmeshed than others. And um, so depending on where you come from, you may feel very much like you belong where you are. Uh, but if you don't, then yes, you tend to look for other groups. And in those groups, there are many more similarities than there are differences, right? And so even as you say, oh, and this, you know, I'm guessing for us, you know, this post-Mormon community where people are talking about these things and interested about these things, we're very similar in that. And so even though, and, and we even value this, this small idea of differences. And so we could tolerate a little bit more of that, but even that we have similar <laughs> to each other. And this was a big part of what happened with the internet. You know, I think the, the idea was that when the internet came on board, that we as humans would just expand in our knowledge and in our ability to think differently and, you know, see everybody else's perspectives and 
even on the internet, that didn't really happen. People found the people that they already had similar ideas with, right? So this is confirmation bias. I think most post-Mormons understand that term or post-religious folks, you know, we, we have studied some of these terms and we tend to do this as humans. I love it. I love it. You are pushing back against some of these uh, false assumptions of how structures work. And I love it. So um, <laughs> let's jump into, you've seen a numerous people deconstruct their faith. You've seen numerous people go through what we call a faith crisis or a faith transition. Yes. Um, their heart is hell. I, 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 I mean, my mom, you mentioned your, your dad passing. My mom passed away uh, about three or four years ago and uh, she passed away from cancer. She was only 59. Oh, wow, Bill. Yeah. And I, and at the same time I was going through being uh, sat down with my, my Bishop, my stake president, second stake president, going through the process of having to always explain myself and always try to figure out how I articulate things carefully so that these folks will let me stay. And then, and then the letter comes and I go to a, a disciplinary court, which you've been through as well. And I, I distinctly remember that being harder than my mom's death. And I know that sounds so strange to people, but being severed from your religious community is going to be, if someone takes their religion seriously, it's going to be one of the hardest things they go through in their life. Yeah. I'm just curious, any thoughts you have on how, how one navigates, um, deconstructing religious beliefs and maintaining as best as they can uh, a high level of well-being and healthiness, um, not not getting too tortured by that experience. Any any thoughts that you have? Yeah. I mean, it is. It's like an identity lobotomy, right? I mean, it's just, it is all-encompassing. Um, I try to, you know, I try to break it down into smaller parts for people so that they can bite it off. You know, I, I offer like faith transition groups where this is kind of what we talk about. We talk about one topic per month so that we don't get so overwhelmed by all the things. Um, and people do respond differently to faith transitions. And I think, like you said, a lot of it has to do with maybe how devoted they were to begin with, how seriously they took it. I mean, there are people that leave their faiths and don't struggle that much, uh, all the way to people who leave their faiths and uh, fit the criteria for PTSD and religious trauma, right? So the, the spectrum is wide. We tend to see more distress the, the stricter uh, the religion is. So with fundamental and strict and conservative religions, those tend to be harder to leave because there were so many more markers in and how you um, identified as a member of that church community. And um, and also the community usually had higher levels of fear and higher levels of distressing narratives around what it meant to leave the community. And in those conservative communities, you're also gonna get less support for leaving, right? It's, it's a less differentiated system, quite frankly. So um, yeah, so back to your question, what were you asking me again? Oh, yeah. How do we make it easy? How, how, did, how did make it as soft on, no, you're doing great. How, how did you make it as soft on people? So you mentioned like, I want to break it down into pieces. And I distinctly remember when I had lost belief in my head, at least in some compartmentalized part of my head, because mm -hmm. there was a part of me that goes like, maybe in some strange way, this is still true. 
I remember getting pushback from people going, Bill, you, why don't you just throw in the towel? Why don't you just leave? Why do you keep urging people to slow down and, and to take their time kind of processing this? And I deeply felt like for the people who were having a lot of angst, that it was healthy for them to take their time and do it a piece at a time. Um, I felt like there was a huge difference on how they came out the other side, spending two years trying to make it work a little bit and, but also like not, not giving into their like moral intuition and, and sort of starting to draw lines of what they would accept and what they wouldn't rather than somebody just being pulled out of it and having to like, go like, okay, it's not true. What do I do now? And, I got a lot of pushback for that, but I thought it was the healthiest thing in the world to just slow people down, give them some room to figure it out in a slow way that maybe it's true. Maybe it's not. Let me dissect it in a, a much more methodical way. Anyway, I guess I'm trying to get at what, do you have any advice for what, like, again, breaking into parts, but what helps people to get through the deconstruction with as little damage to their inner self as possible? Yeah, so let me let me address a few things here. When you say that you got pushback for that, that's not surprising to me because again, we come from a very black and white culture. We come from a very um, kind of historically minded doctrine. You know, for for Latter Day Saints, their doctrine is history, right? It's not mystery. Yeah. <laughs> and so, um, so we don't do well with mystery. We don't do well with ambiguity. We don't do well with uncertainty. And so, when you're trying to offer this perspective that maybe we can slow down, or maybe there's room for nuanced belief or progressive belief, I mean, you and I played a similar role, I think, in our journeys out of the church, where we tried to give different perspectives, or we would try to see um, ways that we could do church community healthier from within, right? So we were not the types that just left within, you know, two two weeks to a month or something. And, and quite frankly, when we were going through some of our faith journeys uh, 20 years ago, I would say we probably both started having, you know, different ideas than maybe the, the literal kind of more disciplinary authoritarian approach to Mormonism. Um, there weren't as many resources, there weren't as many people that were being public about faith transition. So it was harder to leave as quickly. You know, I, I mean, in the work that I've done with John Delin, we've not been doing faith transition work for years. And, um, and we would see kind of these patterns, right, that people would be struggling for anywhere from three years to 10 years. That was the, that was the norm. That was yeah. the norm before they even told anybody that they were even struggling, right? Their spouse, their best friends, their parents. And then, you know, John and I have been looking at each other like, what is happening? Because before COVID happened and we were still doing some of these faith transition retreats, we would start hearing people say, yeah, I read the CES letter last week and here I am today at this faith transitions retreat. I've already decided I don't believe anything. And And we're all like, wait, what? Like, that is a much different type of faith transition than what we were historically seeing in the church. Um, which, you know, I mean, says a lot for representation and for resources, right? When you see other people and you, 
you have other resources, it's much easier to challenge something as large as your worldview. So anyway, that pushback that you're talking about, I think is very normal. Although I agree with you, I think oftentimes it is healthier to take a more ambiguous approach, to take a more uncertain approach, to be willing to sit with that discomfort for some, I mean, for some, you know, for some people that maybe it's extremely toxic or things like that, probably that the faster they exit, the better. But again, do they have the resources to support them on the other side of that? Um, so, you know, going back to kind of like the five areas that I feel like, you know, in trying to simplify a faith transition, which is not simplifiable, mm -hmm. I, I think that one, you're going to have to do a complete identity makeover every, you know, your worldview, when you think about religion, uh, especially if you grew up in it, or if you converted to it, it, it explains everything about life. It, it kind of structures your life, your ideas about your values and morals, how you, you know, how you're going to conduct yourself in the community, what trials mean, what blessings mean, right? So you explain everything that's happening to you through that context of your religious worldview. Um, so individual, your, your entire individual construct is going to have to be redone. Uh, then, you know, who are your primary relationships that it's going to change that too. So if you're in a marriage with another person of the faith, or even if you're not, that that's going to change significantly. Who are your best friends, your, your extended family, your siblings, your parents who typically are, are in the faith. So now you have a huge relational deconstruction of your, of the people who matter the most to you. Um, and that can oftentimes be devastating for everybody involved because you're shifting something so grand. Um, although this could go under individuality, I separate it because it's such a big thing to begin with is your sexuality. Mm -hmm. Your sexuality is going to be completely deconstructed, how you think about sexuality. And I think a lot of times when people think about sexuality, you know, they think about, you know, penises and vaginas. It's like, <laughs> like that's, it's so much more than a sexual act, right? It's so much a part of your identity, of your orientation, of your gender identity, of so many different aspects that, that we carry around with us as human beings. Um, the next thing I think about if you're a parent, which by the way, I forgot to say I'm a parent of four kiddos whom I love, you know, dearly, and I'm a mama dragon of a non-binary trans kid. And um, so your parenting approach is going to change dramatically because most churches do a really good job of offering a parenting plan, right? Here's what you teach and here's what you do and bring them to our events and bring them to our groups and, you know. So now you're going to have to shift everything you knew about parenting. And that is terrifying, terrifying, because it's one thing to kind of step into this abyss by yourself, but to drag your kids along with you can just be a terrifying feeling. Um, and then the last piece is you're going to have to find new community. Um, not everybody loses their community altogether. I mean, fundamental religions typically forcefully lose their entire community. You know, I think about the Amish, the FLDS, you know, if you do not believe, you actually do not get to participate or you, you can't even see your family anymore. Mm. Um, but then for those of us who are in strict religions, the it may not be such a formal ostracization, but it usually does feel different with the people who are in the community. Some people are able to stay in, in community with some of their folks. Um, but I, I don't think I've talked to anybody who's gone through a faith transition who hasn't lost at least 
the quality of some major relationships in their lives. And so you're going to have to find new, new friends, new community and religion, especially strict religion. What it does really well is offer a structure for communal gathering on a regular basis. And we don't see that as well organized in maybe more liberal spaces. And so usually most people are missing, missing that pack animal gathering, <laughs> you know, and they they feel very lonely in that transition. So anyway, those are the five areas that I think in easing, in easing the pain, hopefully one, you can educate yourself about what you might be up against. And I hope to, by sharing these ideas, I'm normalizing it, right? Like you're not weird, you're not different, you're not broken because you're, you're facing some of these things that are very common in this type of a journey. Um, and then, you know, how do you really find grace for yourself in this process? Um, and we'll probably talk more about, you know, like you said, first of all, it happens here, but it's not percolated into your bones yet. So there can be a lot of self-doubt. There can be a lot of that worry that am I doing the right thing, even though it makes sense up here, doesn't mean I've gotten rid of the guilt or the shame that all of that is very internalized, right? And so those are very challenging things. Um, so, I, I, you know, and, and like you said, taking it at a pace that is easiest for you, um, that you're not falling into kind of the classic peer pressure on the other side, right? Like, why are you still wearing your garments? Why haven't you tried coffee? Why haven't you tried alcohol? Why haven't you gone on a psychedelic journey? Why haven't you, you know, so on the other side of things, people can be just as pressuring. Because again, we come from that culture. We still have that missionary DNA. We want to convince everybody over here. And so people who are transitioning can feel very disoriented and and how to do it well and what their peers are telling me, telling them about how to do it well. Yeah. I, I know that doing it slowly as you're losing community over here, you have the time to build it over there. Assuming again, if you live in North Dakota and you leave Mormonism, I don't know that I have great advice for you, but if you're in Utah or Arizona or Idaho, there's going to be enough ex Mormons around that you're going to be able to find some people who uh, have that similar kind of beginning half of the journey and they can sort of relate to you and you can sort of build friendships to some degree quicker than other places. But by doing it slowly, I always felt like you could replace things while you were deconstructing things. And when you do it quick, I feel like you you get severed from one and now there's all this time needed to build it over here. Um, it, uh, the five things you mentioned, all of those are great. It, it feels though that no matter how you do it, again, trauma is inevitable. Um, mother giving birth to a baby both incur trauma. You're, you can't get through this life without it. Mm -hmm. And high demand fundamentalist religion, if you took it really seriously, inevitably gave you some trauma that you might not even know you have. And and it's taken me a lot of time to look back and go, oh, wow, like it did this and it did that. And Some folks are really hurt, Natasha, you know that. Some folks are really oh, yeah. uh, bumped into really hard by dogma and certainty and a structure of how to live this life and get back to, uh, you know, heavenly father in, in the sky and, and to keep your family together forever and to suppress and compromise parts of yourself that you never should have had to do. Any, any thoughts from you on 
folks who have been, I don't like the word damaged, but folks who have been hurt seriously by uh, high demand fundamentalist religion, any, any thoughts from you on things that might help to heal or things that might benefit the person to begin to start to process that and to separate uh, the things that happen to you from who you are and, and who you want to be? Yeah. Well, I think, <clears throat> I think, <clears throat> excuse me. I think the first thing is exactly what you said is, is normalizing that we do not get through life unscathed. I don't mm -hmm. care where, what, you know, whether you grew up in a progressive home or a liberal home or an atheist home or, you know, super fundamental home. Uh, there may be different levels of scathing, but nobody comes into this world like you said we're born with trauma <laughs> the birthing process is traumatic <laughs> for everybody involved so um and and i think a lot of times these more religiously conservative um dogmas like ours in mormonism is that somehow you, you there's a recipe here to escape trauma if you just do what's right it's kind of like that equational you know doctrine like if you do a b and c if you you know, are active and you go on your mission and you get married in the temple and you don't have sex before you're married and all will be well, right? All will be well. And you will just, that's the problem. <laughs> right? You will be blessed and you will be, you know, so this is not unique to Mormonism. This is, this is kind of, I think a way that when you think about how religion evolved, which that's a very complicated, you know, very complex um, thing that again, in post-Mormon, in post-Mormon circles, I see that explained in very minimalistic, kind of very black and white ways. Like, oh, it was, it was, it was, you know, evolved to control people. I'm like, well, it's much more complicated than that. You know, it's when you think about pre-science and pre-certain explanations for things that were happening that were difficult to understand, even with, with as much science and technology that we have today, we still don't understand many things. Right. Um, and so, you, you, people have to come up with explanations and stories and myths and folklore and religion, I think was very much a part of that. And so um, when you were, yeah, I, I, I just think that um, it's difficult to see religion kind of from that big wide range when you're being traumatized by it. But, and, and when you can explain everything through that religious lens, everything that happens to you that's good is because you did something good and everything that happened to you is bad is usually because you did something bad or now you've got the other explanation, which is you're being tried, right? You're being tried for your growth. Those are the explanations really. Um, then it's, it's very challenging to step out of that kind of worldview. And what I also want to normalize here is that although we are traumatized by religion, oftentimes, especially in more conservative faiths, it is also quite, it is also quite um, stress reducing to have those explanations. It actually reduces your anxiety. This is why, like when you look at the research, the research does not support that religion is really that unhealthy mm. for many people. The research shows that people do better in their mental health and all kinds of things when they are within a religious community. Now, of course, religious people will see that as, see, that's because our religion is true, right? And I think more from a social science perspective, it's like, well, see, there's meaning, there's community, 
you know, you've organized your life under certain principles and ideas that help you feel like you can manage the the difficulties that come to you because you have an explanation for everything, right? So that can be really difficult to step away from. And so I want to just normalize that if you step away from religion, um, you're probably going to struggle. You're probably going to struggle. Your mental health may not be as good, especially at first, you know, that, that transition period. It may not be as good. Your relationships will suffer. And then, you know, and so you're struggling, right? You're maybe depressed or you're anxious or you're getting, you know, you're having to face divorces or all the many things that can happen in transition. And then what's the story back home that all the, the LDS folks are telling about those who are transitioning? See, that's what happens when you leave. Yeah. Your life goes into shambles, right? You're, you're not going to be blessed. Of course, of course, you're struggling. You lost your testimony come back to the fold, right? This is kind of the, the cell, right? From the religious community is like, and so then we are in a position where either one, we go into our own modes of, I've got to present happy, 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 which we're really good at doing in Mormon land anyway, right? Because the gospel of prosperity means I've got to, I've got to show that I'm doing well in order because I've got the gospel. Why would I not be doing well? Right? So I've got to show that as part of that mask that oftentimes we, we do, so we'll do that in post-Mormonism too. We'll be like, no, I'm doing great. I'm doing amazing. I'm doing awesome. Look at how amazing my life is because you know that people are talking about you from that perspective. Or if you can't pull that off, you self-doubt. Maybe maybe the church was right. Maybe I would be better if I was still in because um, now I'm facing all these things that I wasn't facing before. So I, 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 again, I think educating ourselves about faith transitions, the challenges, like you said, all the feelings, what are the feelings? Betrayal, mm. anger, confusion, loneliness. Mm. These are so common, so common. Um, and that's, that's, it's going to be a bit of a rough road for a minute. It's yeah. not going to be all dandelions and rainbows and happiness. Um, you know, I think in my work with John DeLynn, we, you know, he came up with this idea of the gift of the of the Mormon faith crisis to give a more optimistic view, because over time you do, you can have a worldview that is much more aligned with your current values. You can build new community. Many people who have left the church five years down the road say, it's the best thing that happened to me. I'm, I would never go back. And so, you know, I think he was trying really hard to show like, look, it's not just all gloom and doom. And I agree with that. I just think we need to do both. We need to know that there is a positive future and we need to know that the road getting there is difficult um, so that we normalize that and not have people feeling like there's something wrong with them for struggling so much. I love that answer. Um, the question here, I, I had to chuckle because I saw you added a little thing at the end of it. So what role does forgiveness play in your own personal development journey? And how do you see it contributing to a more fulfilling life? And you wrote, I don't like it, <laughs> and, uh, but you picked it. And so I, I, I know that you have some pushback here for forgiveness. So um, uh, yeah, yeah. let me ask this, people bump in. So I've had issues in relationships with immediate family where they don't respect boundaries and you put boundaries in place. And if boundaries aren't respected, you create distance to protect yourself. But some people you want to have close relationships with, even if they don't maintain boundaries. And, and in trying to navigate that, I'm always being 
pushed inside my head to to forgive and like just let it go just move on like they're never going to understand your world the way you do they don't have the tools you do they don't understand boundaries and how they work and why they're in place so you just forgive and you move on but then you also set yourself up to then get bumped into again and i'm curious what are your thoughts on forgiveness and what role forgiving or maybe not forgiving holds in again a healthy well-being on this side of life yeah well the way you talked about it i think that's pretty okay um but here's my problem with the term forgiveness i think it is a hugely laden word it's a hugely baggaged word and it comes from christianity i mean it may, it's probably in other religions too but at least in my construct here in the united states it is a hugely christian laden word and then I see all these therapists trying to say, well, forgiveness doesn't have to mean all these Christian things that it usually meant. It can mean all these other things. I'm like, well, then let's come up with new language. <laughs> Why do we have to use a crappy word <laughs> that basically, um, you know, the narrative of forgiveness in most of Christianity and Mormonism and Catholicism is this idea that you turn the other cheek, right? And you don't let things bother you and you let things go. And usually how that's weaponized and used in religious communities is that shitty people get away with a lot of shitty things and people get continually traumatized and abused by, by being pressured to stay in relationships that are abusive. That's quite frankly how I've seen forgiveness used over and over and over again, right? Yeah, forgive me and get over it. But really it's just get over it. Forgive yeah. me is like the shame of telling you it's your problem to get over it. Right. And so right. then you have guilt for not being forgiving. Right. Yeah. And even in the scripture, it's like, forgive however many times, 57 times over or whatever. Yeah. And I'm like, this is such bad boundaries. And this, and this community has used this in really shitty, hurtful, yeah. traumatic ways. Amen. So that's why I don't like it. Now, the idea that you can have compassion. So this is how I would language what you just said. Yeah. The idea that you can have compassion for people within your community that you come from and you, not that we're smarter than, this is not about intellect, this is not about mm -hmm. IQ. People who go through faith transitions or don't necessarily have higher IQs than people who stay in the church. Right. But you do have now a new perspective that people in the church don't yet have. This is true of any deconstruction of anything. I remember myself as a member of the church. All the things that people say now that bugged me, I used to say. <laughs> Right. So I said all those things and, and I believed them and I was, I felt like I was a good person and I was trying to do the best I could in that space. So you can have compassion for somebody in the community, understanding that they may say hurtful things or that they may try to missionarize you because that's their, the church, it's not boundaries that they're worried about. It's your celestial salvation that they're worried about. So if your mother is continuing to send you general conference talks, it's not because one, she, she doesn't automatically have good boundaries. It's because that's not her idea of what's best for you. What's best for you is, and, and what she's doing from a loving perspective, from her perspective is to try to desperately get you to not be an empty seat in the celestial kingdom, right? Sad heaven. Right. And so that's that's how she's loving you and and that's how she's been taught to love you that's a very social construct that your mother is up against if it's your mother who's doing this so so yes we can be if you want to use the term forgiving but i would say more compassionate i'd want to be compassionate i still love this person 
They're a complicated person. This is one thing they do that bugs me, but they do 500 other things that are amazing for me, right? And and we have a relationship and I love them and I want to continue in relationship with them. And so I'm going to create maybe my own internal boundaries or maybe some external boundaries to try to help that relationship survive from a space of compassion and grace. I'm not forgiving my mother, right? I'm just, I'm having compassion. I think forgiveness is this idea. And when you look it up in the dictionary, because I have, I'm like, here's all these therapists saying what it is. And it is basically saying that, you know, a lot of dictionary approaches to forgiveness is that you are saying, you're, I'm okay with, you know, I, I'm going to be okay with the fact that you hurt me. I'm going to forgive you for that. And we can continue to be in relationship. And sometimes that is appropriate. I mean, in marriages, we're forgiving each other all the time and we were hurting each other all the time. Right. And so that's why it's, I don't want to be black and white about it. Like I don't like the term at all, but especially in the realm of sexual trauma, this is where I have seen not only people use forgiveness to pressure people to stay in relationship with people that they shouldn't be in relationship with or domestic violence even, um, but it's also kind of this rushed approach to make everything comfortable and better for everybody except for the victim. If you can just forgive dad, or if you can just forgive the bishop, or if you can just forgive Uncle Tom for basically having raped you when you were 15, we can all go back to being the system that we are comfortable being as a family. And you're getting in the way of our comfort. So let's get to forgiveness. Come on, chop, chop. Let's do it. And, um, and now people are feeling guilty if they can't offer that type of just let go and let be, and I can still show up at the family reunions with the person who hurt me, or I can still show up at the church with the people who hurt me. And for a lot of people now that's more abstract. Like if you feel like the church has hurt you as an institution, right? That's, that's much harder than just one person. So that's where I think that the language of forgiveness is crapola. Yeah, I 100% agree with you, and I think you nailed it. Um, so, so I want to ask a question here about self-acceptance versus personal growth. We we live in 2023. I've got four kids myself. Uh, there is a lot of pressure in that generation, my children and me as their parent, to sort of, you know, Tommy, Tommy, we should just let Tommy be Tommy, and Tommy, uh, you know, we should get participation ribbons and all the kinds of things we do. The fear is that if we make it completely okay for someone to just be who they are, there isn't any pressure to grow or to learn or to press into hard things. Like if, if we come in this generation, it's like, Oh, we don't, we don't want you to do a hard thing. We don't want that to hurt, but life, the only way we really get ahead is doing hard things. Um, how do you balance that? How do you balance self-acceptance or being accepting of others and what their capabilities are versus uh, motivating people to do hard things to um, not be allowed to just be who they are without, we had a daughter, um, one of our, one of our children was again, no offense to her was really difficult as a kid. And she sort of gave you shit if you pushed. And on some level, to get ahead in this world, you gotta you gotta do hard stuff. Any thoughts from you on 
self-acceptance versus a healthy, productive, leaning into an adult life. And um, it just seems like that's a, that's a really complicated because I, I don't think I want to do it the way the old generation did it. I don't want to, I don't want to do it the way my parents did or, or their parents did it to them for sure. And I don't want to also accept the way we're sort of leaning into right now, which is like, just let everyone be who they are. Don't push, you know, don't, don't, don't be too hard on people. It seems like there has to be some sort of balance in that. Oh, sorry. Um, yeah, it's super interesting to hear you talk about this and not to, you know, like make you feel bad or anything, but this, the way you were talking is a very Western mm. capitalistic colonizing type of message. Yeah. This whole idea of getting ahead. What does getting ahead mean? It usually means making money. They usually, you know, as parents, and I, I have these fears, or my, are my kids going to be able to financially sustain themselves, right? That in, in this capitalistic country, right, where we place a lot of value and emphasis and even self-worth on how ahead you get. Right? Yeah. Um, and yet there are plenty of communities um, where you see people being very productive and doing all kinds of interesting things, especially creative things like artistic things and philosophical things. Like I mentioned with Plato and you, know, you think about like um, Catholic monks, right, that wrote their entire lives and some of the most amazing, well, sometimes amazing, sometimes pretty horrible things came out of that. But they were not in a space where they had to get ahead. They were in essence, uh, financially taken care of by their community. So you think about many indigenous tribes, this was this getting ahead. And they weren't just all sitting around doing nothing. <laughs> like, like, again, this is kind of this lazy American Western notion of you got to, you know, this work ethic, which in, in a lot of ways has served us very well as a country. And in other ways, it's caused some of the biggest unhealth we have. Mm. I mean, it does not escape my my conscience that to become a medical doctor in this country is one of the most stressful, horrific processes that continues into your residency as far as not having good sleep, not doing basic self-care. And these are the people that take care of the rest of us from a physical health perspective. How, how did we come up with these structures, right? That that meant you have to you have to basically kill yourself from stress in order to get ahead. So <clears throat> I do think that we are in a different time. You know, we are a hundred, not quite a hundred years, almost a hundred, yeah, almost a hundred years away from the depression mm -hmm. here in this country, which I think exacerbated this fear. We didn't have the social networks or um, you know, the the catch, the social catch nets, net, you know, safety nets mm -hmm. that were needed. So when people lost everything, that was devastating. So we have some intergenerational trauma as well from things like that. Um, and especially in pioneer, those of you who come from pioneer um, background, there's a lot of intergenerational trauma about survival and what that means and to be successful and to make the desert bloom. So, and we're bees in a beehive here in the state. I mean, it's all work. We come from a work culture. That's how you get your value. So I love all the research is saying to us that we're killing ourselves. We're not doing better from a health perspective. We're doing pretty well economically, although there's other countries that do economically well as well and don't necessarily have some of these issues. 
Like I think some countries in Europe have moved to the four day week, you know, instead of the five day week and they're doing better. They have better vacation time. They have better safety nets than we do. But here in this country, it's like, you've got to be self-made. You can't rely on the government to give you anything, et cetera, et cetera. And, and this causes us to die from a lot of diseases and to suffer from diseases. Um, even obesity is tied to these kinds of stressors, uh, which we have a you know an epidemic here in the United States in obesity. And so there's lot lots of lots of interesting things. So I love the research of Brene Brown and and others who have done a lot of work on shame, because this is just another way to shame, is that you're not of correct value if you don't. I don't know, accumulate enough wealth or accumulate enough professional education to go get that wealth, right? And so many people don't fit into those kinds of constructs and don't do well in those kinds of constructs. And we completely ignore them. We only focus on the people who do well as examples. See, be like them. Um, but one of the things that Brene Brown said in one of her first books, which I think it's called, um, It's Not Just Me, I believe that's the name of the book. She said, you cannot get people to grow by feeling bad about themselves mm. because shame will, will destroy it. <clears throat> and as a person of size myself, and as a person who comes from a background of, for example, um, body shame, right, which I think is very common in this country, uh, I, I can go back and look at the every single time somebody pushed me to lose weight, it's more than usually when I gained weight. Mm because it made me so anxious and nervous and self-loathing that I'm still trying to deconstruct today. You know, I'm much better at it, but those kinds of things don't necessarily go away. You just learn how to manage them. And hopefully they're not as frequent as intense, which is true of all symptoms, by the way, of trauma. <laughs> There's no such thing as getting over something to the point that you never really usually think about it again. That's, I think, another point I just want to make for realistic expectations on healing. Um, but I, I think that um, so I really try to do this yes and approach. Like as humans, we are never satisfied. We're never satisfied. That is a human trait. And the sooner we understand that, the better. So it's like, oh, when I get my PhD, then I'll be happy, right? When I get to move to this place, when I get this type of house or car, or when I, you know, uh, learn all these mindful techniques, it's like, we are creatures that, that are dissatisfied. We are built and wired to consistently want something else. And if we can see that as a positive trait instead of a negative trait, like we're, we're constantly, you know, going through an evolution and wanting to grow and wanting to learn and wanting to evolve and better ourselves. Great. But can we do that from a grounding space of self-acceptance? Mm. Can we do that from a space of, I am enough right now. I am worthy right now. It doesn't matter if, you know, I'm unhoused or if I am dealing with a, an addiction, you know, substance abuse issue. It doesn't matter if I'm, um, you know, in, in a big mansion. It doesn't matter your current situation. I am enough. And that is not a message we got in Mormon land mm. at all, right? We were, we were given the message that you hustle for your worth. You have to chase your worth. You have to chase your, your self-acceptance mm -hmm. and, and be therefore perfect, which none of us are. Mm -hmm. And so you're, it's a constant hustle that you're in, you know, and, and even in this last general conference, as I was hearing the talk about pretty much guilting all the older people into going on missions, 
which I'm okay if you want to go on a mission as an older, you know, as an older couple, that can be a very meaningful thing to do. But what I cannot stand is to hear the guilt that's associated with that and the shame that's associated with that. Um, you basically get to hustle for your worth until your deathbed. And yeah. that's not, that's not great. And if you believe the systems theology, you're going to have to hustle after this life too. Yeah, right? that's right. You don't really get to ever just sit down and go like, okay, whew, it's finished. Like, nope. Yeah. Keep popping out babies, keep building world, keep having children, keep helping the next generation get back to heaven too. Like it's never ends. Yeah. Right. And it's interesting when I was, when I was a more, you know, literal believer, that actually was a much more fun heaven for me than the idea that I would sit around on a cloud. I don't know, playing a harp. Yeah. Yeah. That's boring to me. <clears throat> so I actually liked this idea of productivity in the afterlife, right? Because I think most of like I said, most of us like to create, like to think, like yeah. to grow, like I to do what I want to do, not what they tell me to do. Right. Well, that's yeah. <laughs> So I, I am very interested in seeing as our parenting dynamics shift and change, and as some of our kids do get to grow up in homes, or they are advocating, kind of like you said, your daughter is pushing back. You know, she's advocating for herself that I'm going to do it my way, and I'm not going to necessarily go to college. I mean, we're getting a lot of challenges from the younger generation about the environment, whether or not we're even going to be around in 50 years, whether or not they want to get married, whether or not they want to have children whether or not they want to go get, you know, um, formal education through the college system, which quite frankly, most of these kids are graduating with huge amounts of debt. And, you know, my kid who just graduated with biology degrees having a hard time finding, you know, a job in their field. I mean, at this point, if you don't get a master's degree or a PhD, um, you know, most other countries, you go straight into the field and study that. But we have this liberal arts degree that we were just talking about this on the way home last night from um, a skiing trip with my boys. It's like, what degrees can you really graduate with a bachelor's and feel like you're going to be economically safe? We yeah. came up with nursing, accounting, maybe engineering. We couldn't come up with many. Mm. So that's a lot of, they're, they're like, this doesn't make sense. Why mm -hmm. would I spend so much money and time yeah. getting a degree that doesn't really get me ahead like yeah, you know, you're 47 like, years old and you're finally paying off your student loan yeah I, right totally so yeah i i'd say let them challenge us every generation has challenged their parents that's kind of also an evolutionary mm -hmm. kind of perspective and we'll see where that takes us and we we're all going to have anxiety about that and we're all gonna you know we're doing what our parents did in their 50s and oh no the children yeah. <laughs> what will they do next yeah I, I can't wait for the response. Whatever, Grandpa. You know, I can't wait for those to come. Like you said, I'm, I'm feeling older, and I've got grandkids now, and uh, I, I'm, for the most part, I'm deeply proud of the tools that our grandkids will have that my parents could never have even conceived. Yeah, exactly. Um, I think for the most part, it is progress, and yeah. So I, I really love your pushback there as well. <laughs> I want to start to edge into talking about sexuality. Um, and so let's start here. Most of us are in relationships. Again, we're pack creatures. M many of us are married or with uh, a partner of one sort or another. And 
there is this battle in relationships that both people are fighting for their world to be the way they want it to be. Even if it's not, I'm not talking like fighting, like, you know, yelling and screaming, but I, I want to make my world in front of me be a space where I can be my happiest. And my partner is wanting a space where they can be their happiest. And there are these other values of safety and security. Um, it seems like a really tough thing, at least in my marriage, it's a really tough thing. We both love each other. We've been married 26 years. I couldn't imagine life without her. Um, but for both of us to have the safety and security that we want and to give space for our partner to be what they need to be okay too, it, it seems like maybe that's the toughest negotiation in all of life. And I'm just curious what your thoughts are on how one can push for uh, their world the way they want it to be while also negotiating, compromising so that their partner has the safety and security that, that they need to have. And, and maybe that battle is sort of a lose lose and maybe not always a win for anybody. Any thoughts there? Well, you're talking about, again, a, a social construct that most of us have been raised in cultures here in the United States. I mean, I guess it's the majority of your audience or other Western nations that um, the structure is monogamy. The structure and within monogamy, the structure is what I've called the ownership model. Mm -hmm. um, and you see this everywhere, like a lot of love songs have the language of like, I belong to you and you belong to me. Yeah. And it's just this, you know, sounds so beautiful until you really start thinking about the word belong and how um, territorial that is. And we have really set up a monogamous marriage with so many unrealistic expectations that again, maybe back in the day when one, we didn't have DNA testing, so you couldn't tell whose kid was who. Monogamy was helpful in, in regards to inheritances. Um, and maybe also when you had monogamy in the construct of kind of villages where you usually stayed geographically close to your family, extended family, so you had that support <clears throat> to raise kids and to work on the farm or whatever those things were. Um, and also, you know, in, in this country, we've got, you know, the puritanical kind of heritage that although there were some sex positive messages around sexuality, it was very monogamous, you know, it was very, very monogamous. Anything outside of that was seen as the scarlet letter type of issue where you were ostracized from your community again. Um, maybe monogamy was helpful and, and maybe when you didn't live very long and the main focus was, you know, having kids that could support your family business and then you die and off you go. But we are no longer in a space where that is what we see as um, what we want in life. We want, we want things like pleasure and we want things like authenticity and we want things like um, solidarity and, and, experiences you know we, we want so much more out of life and quality of life we expect much more of that and then we, i'm sorry what did you say i said i said it is such a privileged place to be sorry i had it muted there for a second yeah, but it, no, it is we have the time and safety on our hands yeah to, to consider doing life differently than anyone else before us taught us could yes. be done yes yeah yes and and i don't think that that's 
that it's a, an accident that we're seeing all these things happen kind of during our generation. I mean, we have the internet era that's come on. We have, we, you know, in many nations, we do have more wealth than ever before. We do have more kind of freedom than ever before. Women have more rights than ever before, right? We used to think that, oh, men are the sexual ones. Men are the ones having the affairs. Well, guess what happened in the 1960s when women entered the, the workforce in droves? That, that gap has shifted dramatically, right? It's like women get to have affairs too when there's opportunity and when there's economic freedom that we never had before. Um, and even now in 2023, we don't have the same economic freedoms that men have, but all of these cultural things. So now, you know, you're, you're still in this old structure. You're getting married. You know, we're in our, I'm in my fifties. I don't know what you are, Bill. I'm Pretty in my fun. early fifties. So I'm like, I got married at a time and in a culture where this monogamy structure where me and my husband, were going to meet all of our needs together sexual, emotional, spiritual, intellectual. He was my person. We were supposed to be soulmates and each other's better halves. And all these messages that we get sets us up for freaking failure. Like it's, it's, and then it becomes, oh, we're not compatible. I'm like, the system is not compatible. <laughs> the structure is not compatible. No two people are going to be able to offer all of that to each other. And, and most of us are pretty good at figuring out other ways. Like if, if my spouse doesn't like book clubs, I join a book club, right? Or if my spouse doesn't like biking and hiking, I can go do that. So we have some forms of differentiating in monogamy, but when it comes to sex, which is such a tremendous part of who we are, it's back to me and you baby, right? And we've got to figure it all out. And, and I do think that we have an entitlement in this ownership model, an entitlement to each other's bodies an entitlement to each other's minds, um, an entitlement, you know, and how I see this stereotypically gendered in a gendered way show up in my practice with people who come from these cultures are women are complaining that men feel entitled to their bodies, to sexual frequency and sexual behavior. And men are complaining that women are feeling entitled to what they think about, whether or not they have interests like sexual media, you know, things of that nature. So both are feeling entitled. And the way that the church has taught us to respond, because these are taught responses, not all cultures. I always look for what's what's similar in all cultures and what's different. Yeah. Very interesting things that across culture are very similar. And what's not similar. So the pornography dilemma, for example, is not similar across cultures. So we have been taught to feel like if you do something or think about something that makes me uncomfortable, you better stop. Because I, I, I own you. You should care about me enough to stop whatever is pleasurable for you in order to keep me comfortable. And that goes both ways with both genders in, in some kind of different ways that it shows up, but it's a very similar concept. So we grew up with an ownership model and that's very different from what you, you, you're describing you and your wife trying to figure out now post faith deconstruction, which is like, well, hold on a minute. I don't, I don't, you don't, I don't, you don't belong to me. I don't belong to you. We still love each other, right? We have children and history and financial assets. Like we're a team and 
splitting up this team is very costly on many of those levels, emotionally, financially, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So we're going to try to figure this out on a totally different construct that may or may not be monogamous. But when I'm talking about monogamy, I'm talking about you can't even think about anybody else in the church structure. It's not even safe to have a conversation about any part of sexuality that the, that your partner deems as wrong or bad or unallowed. You can't even have a sexual relationship with your own body. Oh. So that's that's the monogamy. Oh, wow. Not that's not the really monogamy. person hears it and sees it. No. That's the monogamy that we come from. So I'm not saying everybody should open up their marriages. I mean, a lot of people do, and that's fine. And that's a whole nother journey. But I'm just talking about giving each other the right to your own body, giving each other the right to your own mind. Mm -hmm. That if I find somebody sexually attractive, or if I want to read a romance novel, or if I want to watch some sexually explicit media on my own, that that's really, quite frankly, none of your freaking business. And we've been taught, oh, no, not only is it my business, but I get to control you. And this is where, of course, porn addiction comes from and all all of these things that are just so unhelpful for people and marital rape and all these things that just happen or coercion, marital coercion, um, duty, sex, obligatory sex. I mean, I, I can just go down the list, right? Whereas if we learned from day one, my body belongs to me, you do not have access to it. My mind belongs to me. You do not have access to it. And then as we build a relationship, even if it is kind of a traditionally monogamous relationship, then we decide how we're going to share our bodies and our minds with each other. But you do not have a right to control me. And that's a very different construct. That's a differentiation construct that most of us who are probably listening to this podcast, which I'm guessing are 35-year-olds and up, have not been raised or role modeled. Who's taught us these skills? as you and your wife are, are working on this, you're starting from scratch. Yeah. Did your, did your parents role model this to you? No. Did the movies role model this to you? No. Did, you know, it's, it's not just religion, it's the media, it's, it's culturally systemic. And, and that's why many of us are really struggling. And we see, I mean, I see it in my kids, their ideas about sex, their ideas about relationships are drastically different than what I thought my life was about when I was in my early twenties. Yeah. And and I just, I would caution, caution is the right word. I would urge uh, folks who are listening to this podcast. One of the things you said uh, struck a chord with me, the book sex at dawn, uh, Christopher Ryan and Cecile de Jetha, I think are the two authors, husband and wife. And I I don't know if you've read that book or not. I'm going to guess you probably have, but One of the things that book did that was amazing to me was it took the, it gave you the perspective of sexuality across time and space. It it went back to primates and said, here's how other primates do it. It's very different. Humans tend to sort of have adapted and taken in principles of each of these different species of primates. Uh, gorillas, for instance, sort of do polygamy with the lost boys, right? And uh uh, the bonobos have monogamy. No, no, bonobos have uh, have just open open relationships. The gibbons have monogamy, and we humans sort of have taken all those kinds of things. And you see it in our in the way that we would like to show up in our sexuality. It also went across cultures in the modern moment. It said, over in this country, here's the freedom of sexuality they have. Here's what they do and don't do. And like you said, it it brings up like oh. I thought it always worked this way across all of humanity, and that's not real. 
sexuality, the access to sexuality, the ability to express oneself as an individual, what kinds of differences show up, how parents relate to their children and what they allow or don't allow. It is so different all across the entire planet that that book, I think for people watching this podcast, I think it would be deeply helpful to you to understand just how much diversity there is within sexuality across the globe and across time. And so I want to just essentially just back up what you're saying that we have a very limited small lens view of what it can look like or what it should look like or what it's supposed to look like. And that just isn't real. Uh, Another myth. Yeah. Another book I would recommend is um, Mating in Captivity by Esther Mm -hmm. Perel. That's a great Uh one as well that touches on some of those concepts. And again, I'm not, I'm not saying that everybody should be in an open relationship or that everybody should be in monogamy, but we need to educate ourselves on what's going to be plausible because I forget who, who made this quote, but he said, if you go to war with your sexuality, you will lose. And I would add to that. If you go to war with your partner's sexuality, you will lose. Mm. Um, Our sexuality is very intrinsic. It's very interesting what you know we have tried the field of psychology has tried to change people's sexualities to the point that we you know have electrocuted people's genitals at brigham young university to try to change something as profound as as somebody's sexual orientation um you you're usually not in control of what turns you on and what is sexually arousing to you you, you're not in control if you're asexual, gray sexual, bisexual, you know, heterosexual. You're not in control of those things. We cannot change fetishes. We cannot change kinks. We have tried in miserable, unethical ways, and it does not work. Yeah. We can shift back to, you know, um, Lisa Diamond's work. Sexuality can be fluid. You, you may have a different type of preferences or even orientation in your 50s and in your 20s. However, that's not that's not something that you've set out as a goal to do. <laughs> Those are things that, that happen kind of more organically. So if you have two people, for example, where it's like, I either need to show up in a way to keep you sexually satisfied, or I need to sexually repress myself so that I don't pressure you to keep me sexually satisfied, which is what's happening pretty much in every single marriage. Yeah you can see how that is very problematic and this starts causing a lot of pain and it interferes with the number one driver of drive, which is pleasure Mm. because we're not approaching these conversations from a sense of pleasure and in curiosity, we're approaching these conversations from a sense of threat and, um, and Mm. fragile sexual egos and a lot of wounds and hurts that are very real. Like, you know, I, I have a love-hate relationship with the, with the term betrayal trauma because it's, it's again, it's used kind of in these weird clinical ways where it's like, oh, you know, you caused betrayal trauma in me. And I'm like, well, I think the, con- the construct caused betrayal trauma because you were taught that if your partner had a different sexuality than you, that would be a betrayal. And, and so how can you not have betrayal trauma, yeah. right? And when people try to either oh. offer something that isn't or, you know, that isn't authentic or repress something that isn't authentic, you're going to have what I call leaky sexuality. It's going to leak out. There's going to be secrecy. There's going to be betrayal. There's going to be resentment. There's going to be resentment, all of these things. And, And 
so many of us are dealing with this. I have dealt with this personally. You know, this is, I'm not coming to you with all this information without my own deep, deep sexual wounds, right? Personally partnered, cultural, um, familial. Mm. I come with my own sexual trauma myself. You know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a survivor victim of childhood sexual abuse and unwanted sexual experiences as an emerging adult, which so many of us experience. We are not doing sexuality well, mm. not in Mormonism, not in the overall culture, do not have the skills. And then those of us who are sex therapists, I, I just came off a, a weekend teaching sex therapists and the person I teach with, which is um, Dr. Stephanie Bueller, she's like, you know, it makes me realize as we teach these therapists that it's an entire construct shift if you're going to go from being a, a therapist to a sex therapist. And I'm like, amen. I agree with that. I went through that shift. It challenged mm. every aspect of my therapeutic training to become a sex therapist. Yeah. Um, all of what you just said is amazing. I, 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 I really, I, I'm loving the conversation. I think folks will deeply benefit just from having these topics sort of thrown out and now it's just safe to talk. Like I can't, I, I can't say what's right or wrong. You, you know, my wife's values and needs are different than my values and needs. And as we negotiate, there isn't a wrong side or a right side. There isn't a, a line that should be drawn. You know, no one else could come in and go, I'm going to draw the line here. And this is where you both get as much as you can get. Um, but that's not real. Yeah. But what should be absolutely safe in every relationship should be to talk out loud about what you need to be okay. Um, I This is what I need to be okay. Whether it can be given or not, it, it should be allowed to be said. And, and so much of these conversations are one partner's listening to this conversation, knowing they could never share this with their partner because it's just too scary. Right. And in some, in some level, people have got to start to, to be okay. Again, you can not do it if you don't want to, and you can keep living a life of repression and resentment, but people have got to start saying out loud what they need to be okay and be able to talk to their partner and say hard things. And um, I know in, in my marriage, that certainly has happened the last four or five years we have worked really hard to hold space that I'm not going to shame you. I'm not going to judge you as bad. You're different than me. It makes me uncomfortable. I'm going to sit with my own discomfort mm -hmm. and I'm going to validate that your expression of humanity is just as good and valid as my expression of humanity. It bumps into me. We don't, we don't have the um, ability for that to mesh perfectly. And so let's talk it out. And let's figure out how we can adjust as much as possible and compromise as much as possible without either one of us feeling like we're giving too much of ourselves, and it doesn't work, right? And um, I think that's that's hard. Yeah. Maybe but the hard thing. It's beautifully said. That's exactly the work. Yeah. And 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 we come from a culture where there is wrong or right, where there is black and white. So just getting getting past that, right? That. Oh, you would have a fantasy that would include um, an orgy, right? Or you would have a fantasy that would include uh, homoerotic themes, even though you consider yourself heterosexual, you know, or you, you would have a fantasy that would include sucking my toes, right? <laughs> whatever that is, or that you would just find somebody else out there in the world attractive as you notice them. Like these are all such normal aspects of human sexuality and, and it's our playground, right? It's our brain is our playground. It's our fantasy world. 
again, we come from a culture that said your thoughts will condemn you. That if you think about things, you will behave. And, and that's so not true. That's so not true. Um, I mean, we lose the capacity for play and for fantasy as we leave childhood. How many times did I play the role of G.I. Jane with my brothers who were fascinated with G.I. Joe? And we would all kill each other and we would die. And we would, you know, we would like do all kinds of things. Um, not once did I ever think this kind of play would lead to me actually murdering my, one of my brothers, right? Like I was so protective of my brothers, but this was fun and it was play and it was creative and it was a fantasy. And we got to play with themes that we were watching and that we were influenced by, but we didn't want to do in real life. And our sexuality is no different than that, but we condemn ourselves and each other just by those same ideas and thoughts. Um, there's a great book. Oh gosh, what is it called? I always forget. It's like by Justin Lay Miller. And um, I think is what do you want? Or tell me what you want. Let me just look this up really fast. And he did some great research on fantasies. Um, finally, I mean, I could have told him what he would find, but he actually did the research because I've been listening to people's fantasies yeah. for 20 plus years. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I love it when people do the research and then I can say, see, this is not just my idea. This is actually the science. It's called Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire. Mm. and how it can help you improve your sex life. You know what I'm adding to Audible today. Yes, add that one. That's a great one. And plus, he's a great person to follow um, as far as social media is as well. He mm. comes from the Kinsey Institute, and he's just a great researcher. And um, so he's constantly offering perspectives that kind of challenge our, you know, structural ideas about sexuality. So, uh, so these are normal things, and not everybody who fantasize about fantasizes about things will do it and in fact the more you're not allowed to fantasize the more it actually does become behavioral which is the yeah. huge issue with the pornography dilemma in mormonism it's all right? creative. Yeah, it's it's all creative. the more you feel anxious the more you're like oh no i'm not supposed to do this it's like dieting it's like every time i go on a diet that's when i eat the most Krispy cream donuts right? yeah. it's like when i just accept you know and get in tune with my body and my nutrition and what my body actually wants i I might have a Krispy Kreme donut, but not 12 of them, you know, in a binge like setting uh, because I'm like, oh, no, my diet starts tomorrow. Ah. <laughs> you know, and so, so we have to consider what we're doing as far as that anxiety feedback loop that when we're like, oh, I have to present in this way. And if not, my spouse might leave me or I might not be able to be who I am, then we're actually creating more behavioral problems, more behavioral problems. Um, which is tied not to desire and pleasure again, but to stress and anxiety. Yeah. Love it. Yeah. Good stuff. Um, a couple more questions and I'll, I'll let you get on here with your day. So uh, one of them is about consent and my parents never taught me really consent. My grandparents sure as hell didn't teach their kids <laughs> consent. Um, my, my grandfather was physically abusive to his kids and, uh, his feelings and what his feelings drove him to do trumped what anyone else cared about anything. Um, I, I become an adult deconstructing Mormonism. And for the first time I'm thinking through consent and I want to apply consent here sexually, but yeah. consent in general, we don't do a very good job teaching it. And then consent isn't enough because people, if there's a power differential, if there's a difference of privilege, if there's a difference of 
consequences for people. People might say yes when deep down in their gut, they're like, oh, fuck no, please no, please no. So then we have this new term called enthusiastic consent where you should, if you're making a request, you should seek out the person enthusiastically letting you know they want to do this thing, whatever it is. So I want to talk about the uh, process of negotiating and seeking out enthusiastic consent from people if you're making a request for something, whether it's a sexual request, whether you're asking somebody to help you with building the shed in the backyard. Um, here's what I here, here's what I tell myself. I tell myself that every human being has the right to make a reasonable request of any other human being and that the other human being has a right to feel safe to say yes or no. And that where it works best is that when both parties let each other know that they're excited to say yes and that there's not any sort of punishment, shame, manipulation, uh, unhealthy consequence for saying no. And that in that space, neither party, the person making the request shouldn't be shamed, shouldn't be judged as being a creeper or weird or whatever. Again, we're talking sexuality because they asked for what they needed and they're responsible to make the other person feel completely safe to say no and to not participate in those things without and not have shame or manipulation or coercion. Anything else you want to add to that sort of concept that would help us better frame how to negotiate sexually, how to negotiate sexually, but also I think this applies to just negotiating in general uh, in terms of doing it in a healthy way that values consent. Yeah, so much. (laughs) I could talk about this for three hours more. (laughs) um, Yeah, so you started with this, you know, with this story about your grandfather and, you know, the patriarchal kind of concepts and, why did he act like he owned everybody? Because it wasn't that long ago that men did own everybody, right? Mm-hmm. So they owned, they they literally legally owned their wives and their children. And children, you know, were seen as kind of like continuations of, of the work that needed to be done to help that try, you know, that little clan survive, right? So this is why there's also a lot of guilt and shame, a totally different topic of not following in the family business, you know, because if your parents created it, why wouldn't you want to continue it? Right. And so anyway, there's a lot of ownership themes in how United States family structures were set up and we're not, you know, just because we're 150 to 200 years away from that doesn't mean that we're not still affected by those kinds of things that 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 isn't that far removed it's our grandparents it's our great grandparents right definitely our great great grandparents so um and and i see this too in in just the realm of sexual education like i think it's i mean i i can't tell you that just in this last month just in october i met with three women who were not educated about when their period was going to start and this, that why does this happen? Because in this country, parents own their children and they get to decide what kind of education their children will be able to get. So that is not, I don't, I don't believe that's a parental right to keep your kids from sexual education. And yet in this country, we believe that it is, that it is my right. And, and I'm not saying that, um, the government or the school system should teach sexual values necessarily, although consent is a value, so it gets tricky, right? 
However, I do think that kids should have access to anatomical education and basic sex education. I don't care who their parents are. That should be a right. That's actually in the World Health Organization. That's a sexual right. Um, and the World Association for Sexual Health. So we are not even giving kids in this country basic rights when it comes to their sexual education because we allow their parents to interfere and to project their own values, which as a parent, you have the right to do. You have a right to, you know, teach your kids your values, but you shouldn't be, you shouldn't have the right to teach that in a bubble where that's all they get. So that's, yeah. that's give something. People, that give people tons of information and let people make the best choices about that information. That, that seems so common sense, but you're right. It's not. It's, no, it's not. So I've had men tell me that they didn't, they were shocked when they got their first wet dream. They didn't know what was coming out of their bodies. I've had, you know, so kids are scared of their own bodies because we don't teach them about their bodies and, and very normal functions about what's going to happen. Imagine bleeding from your vagina and not knowing what is happening. Yeah. Imagine yeah. that, right? Um, so many like scared to death thinking they're dying what what would you think if you had no idea that I'm reading yes out of your vagina what mm -hmm. there's something coming up blood is is coming out of me i'm i'm going to die ah oh, sorry i just get so angry oh. anyway so <laughs> anyway um so consent yeah of course we don't come from a culture of consent we care more in this country about how grandma feels about little johnny giving her a hug than how little 5 year old johnny feels in the autonomy of his own body. I think 70 year old grandma should be a little bit more differentiated than we would expect a five year old to be. Mm. Right. But we, so we have this, so consent starts very early and parents can do this from a very early age with things like hugs and tickling and um, wrestling, you know, all the things that siblings and cousins do. Um, and, and as I get to middle school, bigger things like whether or not, you know, I, I, I will never forget how many times my bra strap was, was pulled from behind me with the whole, you know, north, south, equator, whatever, with the, the kid behind me that thought that was funny. And, you know, I, I remember talking to a parent where their kid had turned around and smacked that kid. And guess who got suspended? Yeah. Smacker, right. And I'm like. I wrote a big letter that no, both kids need to be suspended. And I'm, I'm even not sure that the second kid should have been suspended, right? Like that's not okay. So the messages that we have again in our culture around consent are very problematic. Mm. And then you, like you're saying, it gets more problematic when you give consent, but not for good consensual reasons, mm. right? Like, well, I'm going to give consent because I'm afraid you're going to leave me. Right. And this can start as early as high school, right? Well, if I, if I don't, if I don't have sex with you, then I'm going to lose you as a boyfriend or a girlfriend. Um, or because I want to keep up with my peers, you know, my peers are all talking about how they're having sex. So I'm going to consent to sex because I want to be cool and accepted, right? That's not a great reason to consent. Um, or for cultural reasons, like I've talked to many LDS folks where, you know, it's not like the husband really showed up in a coercive way but she still had a lot of ideas about what it meant to be a good wife and you give yourself sexually, even though she didn't really want to. And he's like shocked hearing this for the first time, you know, in our session that 
It's like, I didn't even know you felt this way, you know? And so, um, so those, and then of course there's much harder forms of issues with consent, like coercion and, and rape and assault and harassment and all the ways that people show up in sexual kind of criminal or very inappropriate ways. Um, so I, I do want to complicate enthusiastic consent a little bit. I think enthusiastic consent is a great tool for teenagers and for emerging adults. I don't think it's a very useful tool in long-term relationships. Quite frankly, in long-term relationships, not a lot is enthusiastic anymore. Yeah. <laughs> like, you're in patterns of routine. I you're did the last night. I wasn't excited about it. You know, I just, I somebody's got to do them and she does her fair share of shit. So get in the kitchen and get it done. Yeah. And I think too, even with teenagers and emerging adults, we want to share with them that there may be some conflictual feelings as you begin your sexual debuts of whatever it is. Now, the first time I remember kissing a boy, I was nervous. I, I did want to, but I don't know that I would say I was enthusiastic about it. I was like, I was curiously kind of going into that space. I was nervous. It was the first time we did it. I think I was in ninth grade. He stuck his tongue in my mouth. Wasn't great. I was kind of like, I don't know if I like this. It was very consensual. I, I was in it. I, I was not just because I was hesitant doesn't mean I wasn't consensual. Yeah. And this is, I think, where we're having a hard time. I mean, I'm so grateful for the Me Too movement. So grateful for it. Mm -hmm. And yet I think we are getting a bit binary in our ideas about what it means to be a little hesitant and where that hesitation comes from and whether or not it's healthy or not. Usually when you're trying something new, you're going to be a little bit hesitant because mm -hmm. it's new. It's, it's maybe a little nerve wracking. It's a little scary. It's a little anxiety producing. So that was true of my sexual debut, which was very consensual. Um, with my partner who I'm actually with now, right? So he was my high school boyfriend the first time I had sex. I was nervous, right? I was a little, you know, I, I didn't know if it would hurt. All these messages, right? But So I don't know that I would say I was enthusiastically consensual, yeah. but I was consensual, right? I was nervously consensual. And, and then, of course, I had the backlash of all my cultural training that I shouldn't be having sex. So the, the consent issues that came in for me at that point weren't even really about me. It was about my church was telling me I should say no, right? So, so consent can be very complicated. And I think we need to have these complicated discussions with our kids, right? And our emerging adult children and to consider them for ourselves. So when I'm talking to couples who are have been married for 20 years, 30 years, and they're they're starting to think, well, maybe we should do something novel or different, or maybe we should open up our marriage, or maybe we should do this or that, all these new ideas, <clears throat> it can be scary. It can be a little bit like, and, and also what about the people who are like, you know what, that's not super interesting to me, but I'm totally willing to do it for you. That's not enthusiastic consent. Right. But that's still consent. And that's not necessarily, I'm not talking about duty sex, like, oh, I guess I better do that for you. It's like, I don't mind. It's not my 10. You know, I prefer to do this, but I know that you like this every now and then. So I'm willing to go down on my like level of pleasure. Maybe it's a six for me. Yeah. No problem. I can do that for you every now and then. So it's consensual, but not enthusiastically. Mm. So I think consent really needs to be about pleasure. It needs to be about self-awareness. It needs to be about good education. 
It needs to be about healthy relationships. And like you said, being able to tolerate that discomfort of when somebody says yes or no. We have huge, huge stories around rejection when it comes to people saying, no, you're rejecting me. We really need to shift that into saying, thank you. Thank you for telling me your truth and that you're not in this space. Um, there are couples, of course, who are managing kind of chronic libido desire discrepancies. So it can be hard if you're the consistent higher libido partner <clears throat> to be the main initiator all the time and to not get what I call initiation fatigue. It can be hard to be the low libido desire person uh, on, on, a on a continuum where you feel like you're constantly being you know, expected to do something. So those are really, really important things to get help with because they're very normal, very common. It's the number one thing we see as sex therapists is either libido desire discrepancies or erotic desire discrepancies. Like what turns me on doesn't necessarily turn you on. So, and that's because we show up differently. I know that somewhere in our narcissistic ego selves, right? It's a narcissist, right? In the myth that looked at herself in the in the river and fell in love with herself. I'm sure most of us would love to be married to ourselves. Same same drive, same erotic similarities, right? But, but we're not. We're, we're married or partnered with somebody who's completely different. Mm. And we don't have the resiliency skills to have cyclical safety, what I call cyclical safety. <clears throat> it's not just about me saying, hey, would you like to do this? It's about the other person being able to say no or, or showing concern or showing confusion and and for me to be able to be safe too for their reaction so you're safe for what i'm talking about i'm safe for, for your reaction and and there we go you know we don't just oh no the first time i see something nervous or you're crying or whatever i'm, I'm out of here i just won't mention this again now mm -hmm. we need to be able to sit and be safe enough for the conversation and for the reactions within the conversation as long as nobody's throwing plates and being abusive let's be safe enough for the reactions yeah the, the lesson of sitting with our discomfort and sitting with others' discomfort might be the biggest piece of inner work we're all sort of having to do. Because we were yeah. told we were we grew up in a culture of conformity. We grew up in an enmeshed culture where how you belonged was to make sure the people around you were comfortable. Mm -hmm. So even though we do we are an American religion, Mormonism, we're also very enmeshed religion. I sometimes tease that maybe Joseph Smith had like a, an Italian gene in him or something. <laughs> so it was very enmeshed. Um, and so therefore the, the loyalty in the system is much more important than any individuation. And what you want is you don't want so much individuation that then you feel like you don't need the, the group. You want a middle space where we can have the I and the we. That comes from the circumplex model. That's a great thing to Google an image for is the circumplex model and to kind of figure out where do your systems fit. We want to, to have the I, I can have me, and we can have the we. And, and, and that's a constant wrestle between those tensions of what it's going to mean. Um, I just did a couples retreat where we talked about the triangle. I feel like you know, we were taught the triangle that's me, you, and God. The new triangle is me, you, and us. Those are three different entities. I'm mm -hmm. a different entity, you're a different entity, and our relationship is a different entity. Mm -hmm. They all have needs, they all have wants, and they're very different. And, and I think that's a good construct to start with. Yeah. I want to say one more thing about consent, get your two cents on it. I'll ask you one last question and then let you go. But, um, in 2023, the Me Too movement, movement, 
there is this deep, like, like somebody being healthy on one side, we're sort of setting them up where it's possible to portray them as really unhealthy, even though they're not being unhealthy. I'll give an example. I won't even use sex. I'll just use going on a date with somebody wanting to hold a hand. We sort of imply this like rigid way in which consent works. Um, you ask every time you go to do something, the person says yes or no, but that's not how the world works. It doesn't. So if I'm at a, a date with a girl at a movie and I reach over to hold her hand, I'm not going to whisper in her ear during the movie that, Hey, uh, I'd like to hold your hand. I'm wondering if that's okay. like, I don't think that works that way. We have to sort of make room that people can, again, not jump from A to Z. That's called sexual assault if they don't, you know, but to nudge little tiny steps and to check in to make sure that things are okay. So for instance, if I'm on my first date with a person, I reach over and go to hold their hand. They can either hold my hand or not. Um, there seems to be this, we seem to be telling people in the here and now that everything has to be talked out and agreed to. And I'm worried that we live in a world, if we do that, it really doesn't work that way. And hence we sort of scare off all sides from being able to make the nudges into places where both parties either, you know, want to be. Um, I, I don't know. Anyway, your thoughts on how you actually negotiate consent as you make requests, both with language and with bodily action without being unhealthy. Any thoughts? Yeah. I, I mean, there's a lot of yes. ands to what you're saying. I mean, I, I do think that uh, most of the social science will say that communication is highly nonverbal, right? So I think like 80% of communication between humans is nonverbal and, you know, 20% is verbal. However, at the same time, we have a really shitty history when it mm -hmm. comes to sexual consent um, mm -hmm. for a lot of reasons, right? A lot of what we've already talked about, but even the, <clears throat> I mean, I, I'll, I'll never forget growing up watching movies. They were black and white movies. I can't tell you who the actors were right now, but where there was this very classic scene and I saw it repeatedly where, you know, she would be like upset, you know, this is a heterosexual couple, right? I was like, Oh, I don't know that I want to be with you, which of course is this whole like slut shaming, because if you want desire as a woman, that's not the role we were off. You know, we were taught, we were supposed to be the gatekeepers of our vaginas and keep our legs closed, you know, and, to let somebody in, it was never about our desire. It was about protecting our pussy from other people. And so then, you know, so I'm like, oh, so whether or not I really want to be in a relationship with somebody, I've got to pretend I don't. This is the kind of classic, what's the song that everybody's having a fit about this year? Like, it's going to come up now for Christmas. It's like, hey, baby, it's cold. Yeah, baby. That's a perfect example. A lot of people are like, oh, he's sexually assaulting her. I'm like, no, this was written during a time where this is how you had to show up as a woman in order to be able to get away with having sexual desire. You, mm. you can't say, I want sex. You can't say, yes, I want to stay here. And you can hear it in the song, right? What, what would my father say? What would my brother say? Right? She doesn't even really say, where, what would my sister say? It's all about what would the men in my life think if I really stay here in a space where maybe I want to be and, and put out, and now I'm going to be slut shame for the rest of my life. And, 
deal with my my family's honor and you know whether or not I'm damaged goods and all this crapola. So anyway, so and, and then men in the in the classic gender roles have been given the role of aggressor and initiator, and they're the ones that are supposed to ask for dates. And I never asked somebody out on a date. That would have been mortifying in the eighties, right? Nowadays, like that has completely shifted. You know, all kinds of people are are asking people out for dates. Um, but we grew up in these gender roles where you know. So anyway, back to the movie scene. Oh no, do not. And then he would hold her tight and she would be like, oh. and then he'd kiss her. And at first she was resisting. And then she'd melt into this kiss. And off they go into the sunset. Yeah. And I'm like, holy shit of consent that we've grown up with. Mm. Right. And so I would, I guess I would counter a little bit of what you're saying that I do think in our current culture, because we do need to do a lot of work to catching up in what correct consent is. I think it's very, very reasonable and healthy to ask, especially at first. That's why I'm saying for enthusiastic consent, I think is a really good idea for college age, you know, people and um, high school folks. Because I and, and and then people are like, well, won't it won't it interfere with the eroticism? And I'm like, can't you get creative with your eroticism verbally? Mm. So even that 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 scenario you played out in the movies and the play the movies playing, and maybe you want to reach out and hold somebody's hand, wouldn't it be erotic for somebody to lean over and hey, I I'd, I'd really love to hold your hand. Would that be okay? I mean. I remember the first time a boy asked me if he could kiss me instead of just going in for the kiss. That felt pretty good. I was yeah. like, wow, this is awesome. <laughs> and, you know, and, and he was giving me a look. He wasn't like, so can I kiss you? I mean, you got to, you know, you got to use your. Yeah, use your sexy boy. Energy, yeah. Right. And so he was like, oh, would it be okay if I kissed you? And he was looking at me, you know, with those yeah. <laughs> eyes. And I was like, holy, like lubrication going on right now in yeah. my vagina. Right. Like I was like all about it. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I think we have this misnomer that verbal isn't erotic. And I think verbal is very erotic. Verbal stimulus. Um, it's, it's another stimulation for our brain. In fact, this is one of the things I talk about with a lot of couples who are in long-term relationships is that they've stopped being verbal with each other. They're just going through the sexual motions. Like, are you talking to each other? Are you moaning? Are you sighing? All of that is stimulation. It's auditory stimulation for your biggest sex organ, which is your brain. So when somebody uses their twinkles in their eyes and their voice and they chase shift their voice and maybe it becomes a little bit more breathy, and all of a sudden, it's like, wow, this is this is hot. <laughs> right? I love it. I love it. Um, last question I want to ask you is in I, I, the question was, what sort of conspiracy or crazy ideas out there that that you either believe or push back against? And you made a note of sex addiction. We talked about it a little bit earlier. Yeah. But I, I want to. I want to give you a moment to, if there's anything else you want to say about that in terms of why the general populace believes a certain framing for that. And you would go like, mm, that's not the right way to frame that. 
Yeah. So I, again, I could talk about this for three hours. Um, I do just want to say that um, I ran a podcast called Mormon Sex Info, and it's now kind of blended into my new branding, which is just the Natasha Helfer podcast. If you want to go listen to like 12 hours of information on why this is the case that took me about $10,000 to gather that information for my own education, please go do that because I have offered that as a free resource to my community, right? So please go and educate yourselves because what I'm going, and, and this is a very tender topic, right? Because a lot of times when I say there isn't anything, you know, sex, sex addiction or porn addiction doesn't exist, what people usually hear me saying is you're minimizing all the pain and the lived experiences that I've had with a person who maybe has had some compulsive sexual behavior, or even if, have, if it hasn't been compulsive, you're minimizing the pain of this unwanted behavior within our relationship or within my lived experience as an individual. And that's, I'm, not, I'm not doing that, but I am a big believer, especially as a clinician, that correct assessment leads to correct treatment planning and correct treatment planning leads to correct healing. And if you get it wrong from the beginning, um, I mean, any of you who've been like depressed or bipolar and given the wrong medications, you will know that 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 that, that inaccurate assessment uh, really wreaked havoc on your life, right? So the again, we come from a puritanical system where a lot of this is going to feel like um, like it, it just it's culturally constructed and we have this idea that, you know, if you're going to just be, if you're just going to loosen your sexual wiles, you know, that's the natural man, that's evil, that's pernicious, you're out of control, you're undisciplined. We have a lot of these kind of concepts and ideas. So the main reason why there isn't sex addiction is because it doesn't follow the same uh, kind of neuropathic neurological pathways that things that are more um, under under the, the guise of behavioral addiction would do. I, I per personally, I don't like the term addiction. It really isn't a clinical term. In the, even now with uh, in the DSM-5, when they're talking about substance issues, they talk about substance dependence. They don't use the term addiction. So it's kind of a, a term that's been colloquially used in all kinds of inappropriate ways. But we do know, for example, that gambling has a, a certain neuropathway where it can be very difficult for people to stop a behavior, even if satiety has been reached. For example, if you go to Las Vegas and you see somebody win the lottery, you know, win and oh, all these coins come out, they'll gather them up and just keep on going, right? Uh, so, so something isn't quite wiring with satiety. In, in some of these behaviors. We know this is also true sometimes with like, um, uh, what's the clinical term for shoplifting? I'm, I'm blanking on that right now. We're also concerned about video gaming because it's kind of following that same neural pathway that even if you win the game, you want to continue to play, right? And so this can cause um, life balance issues for people, right? Where they're, take, they're either spending time or spending money or taking risks that are not helping their lives, you know, not following the the kind of lifestyle that they would prefer to have. So with sexuality, you for most people, you ejaculate or you have an orgasm, and that's I it. Yeah, yeah. No. <laughs> you don't keep going. 
Don't <laughs> right. keep going. So there's a different neuropathway energy. Now that doesn't mean that you can have an unhealthy relationship with your sexuality. By all means, most of us have unhealthy relationships with our sexuality. Right. It doesn't mean that you can't become impulsive with your sexuality or compulsive. There's even certain, um, like if you're going through a manic episode as a bipolar person, uh, you're probably going to have that as a symptom. You're going to have some sexual compulsivity issues. If you're ADHD, you might have some uh, sexual impulsivity issues. There's all kinds of things that have been studied out as far as how sexuality uh, intersects with mental health disorders, um, intersects with, you know, all kinds of community messages, et cetera. So I'm not, I'm not trying to say that people can't have unhealthy or compulsive or impulsive ways that they're managing their sexuality in ways that do not align with their personal values. It can cause distress both for them personally and also for their spouses. Mm. Now, how this shows up in our culture is both with masturbation and sexual media. And most people who use masturbation and sexual media in the general population will masturbate once or twice a day to like once a month. That's generally how people are masturbating in our current culture. I'm, I'm not talking about Mormonism. I'm talking about the mainstream culture. And, um, and that's seen as falling under the norm. And most people are using sexual media to masturbate to, right? So that's what most people are using sexual media for. So most people will use sexual media for five to 15 minutes, maybe 20, depending on how long it takes you to reach that climax. And then off they go. Again, some people that I've worked with in LDS land will not masturbate. So then their sexual media consumption turns into hours because they feel bad about masturbating. And I'm like, if you could just masturbate, you would probably wouldn't be watching it for hours. But okay, there's that. And it's not like in Mormonism, you can say, well, I only masturbated once this week. I'm doing okay. Or I only watched sexual media for 15 minutes this week. I'm doing okay. Yeah. It's, it's a zero-sum game in Mormonism. So it's, it's either you don't do it at all and you're or considered healthy murder. <laughs> or you're doing it even just a little bit, not even as much as the mainstream you know, population is doing. And now we're talking about porn and sex addiction yeah, and the betrayal trauma, right? And all of this. And, and so we have very little understanding of how that we're setting people up for failure because most people will have a solo sex life believe it or not, even if they're married, that's another myth that we come from, right? You get married so that then you can sexually express yourself. You're sexually expressing yourself as from, from in the womb yeah. till death. Relationship status is not how we sexually express ourselves. It's one of the ways it's one of the, it's one of the, it's one of the spaces where we sexually express ourselves, but we are sexually expressing ourselves in our fantasies, in our minds, in our bodies, in our arousal, in our physiology, even in our suppression of our sexuality, we're expressing ourselves. So this idea that all sexuality should be managed, again, within this context of this ownership model, is just unrealistic and sets most people up for failure. And then the betrayal is real. The pain is real. The self-loathing is real. So none of those feel. I'm not saying any of those feelings are not real. But the construct of how you're looking at that issue is part of the problem. And of course, it's very hard as a clinician to treat a problem when you're supposed to, as a clinician, meet people with their beliefs and their values and their religious diversities. And I'm not supposed to necessarily challenge that, right? So that's very difficult. Like when I go to my physician, they could care less if it's part of my religious belief of whether or not I should eat 12 Krispy Kreme donuts. They're just going to tell me 
this is what your BMI is. This is what can help you do it or don't do it, but off you go. Right. And so as a clinician, it's much harder to sit with people in these spaces where you're trying to offer a little bit of education and them not feeling like you're not valuing or um, honoring their belief system. Right. And Mormon is Mormons are, are not alone in this. I mean, We've got the Orthodox Jewish community that, you know, says no to masturbation, um, says no to many things like really, you know, missionary sex position is kind of the way to go. Heterosexual sex is the way to go. So there are lots of other communities that have these kinds of sexual standards that are not based in healthy sexual understanding from a psychological or social science approach. And that's why I got into trouble, right? Because here I am, this Mormon lady, and I identify as Mormon, by the way. I know that there's this whole LDS Mormon debacle going on right now. But first of all, I'm not LDS anymore because they kicked me out. And um, and I grew up in Mormon land where we were supposed to be proud to be Mormons. I still have that Mormon identity. Um, so I grew up this Mormon woman and um, shoot, where was, where was I going with that? Now I forgot where I was going with that. But anyway, I, I grew up with a lot of ideas. Oh, yeah. As a clinician, I grew up with, you know, with all this Mormon ideas about sexuality. I became a marriage and family therapist, which from a relational perspective, emotional intimacy, it completely corroborated my Mormon religion. I didn't have a lot of struggle being a, a relational therapist and being a Mormon woman. Mormonism is very family centric. It's very marriage centric. So here I am helping marriages. But then it, when it came to sexuality and, you know, my first mixed orientation couples and my first gay men and my first lesbian women, and then all these sexual issues that people were coming up with. And the pornography dilemma was huge because I was practicing when the internet started and now pornography was available to everybody. Um, so I started seeing all these things. I, I went and got training and I went to the Carnes Institute, which is the sexual sex addiction training, which is a kind of a one-man show that he's the one who kind of came up with that model. And it didn't sit well with me, even as an LDS therapist. I was like, this sounds like they're treating this from like, like a bishop would treat it. We're going to monitor your behavior. We're going to, and I had already seen tons of people through my practice that that wasn't working for them. It would work for like a few weeks, maybe a few months. And then they'd be right back into the old pattern. It's like dieting. It works for about three months. And then you're right back to the old pattern. And in fact, not only the old pattern, a pattern that's worse. Right. And so I was so concerned for my community. And then I find out that, oh, these addiction models, they're not everywhere. You don't find them in New York or California or Washington. You find them in the Bible Belt. You find them in the, the Book of Mormon Belt. Um, because the therapists are also religious. And so they have their own biases and their own non-education because we're not educated about this in our programs. Hmm. And, and, and that very easily could have been me. I very easily could have become a CSAT instead of a CST. And so I'm very passionate about this because I think it's unnecessary tragedy, unnecessary tragedy. And, um, and there's so many metaphors I could give. Like, I mean, we don't do this around romance, although the, the leaders have tried to. Somebody must have listened to me <laughs> 10 years ago because <laughs> now they're talking about romance novels and they never used to do that. 
that many, and if we're going to stay with the gender stereotype, many women will read things like Twilight or uh, we'll watch Bridgerton, LDS women, right? Or we'll watch, um, oh, what's the Irish show that was so popular um, with the Irish man and the woman, the nurse that went back into time or whatever. Oh, anyway. I, I, yeah, my wife watches that, I, but I, I know yeah. what you're talking about. Yeah, super, super, super sensual stories, super sexual stories. Yeah. And and guess what the women in my office were were saying as they were reading these stories? This is so much fun. This is like making my drive come back. Now I'm excited to have sex. Now I, I know. And I'm not hearing the men coming in with betrayal trauma that why is she feeling this way about Jamie or, you know, or the vampire dude and not me. He's like, well, this is great. This is great yeah. that she's feeling this. And we're having like a reawakening to the pleasure because she's tapping into eroticism. Mm. She's she's giving herself permission to tap into something sensual. And even this whole idea that men are more visual than women, there's not a lot to back that up. When you hook up genitals as people watch videos, uh, women will show their vaginas and their bodies will show arousal, but their brains will say, I'm not aroused. Mm. Um, so again, what where's the cultural piece to that right we're not allowed to be aroused we're taught to be disgusted we're taught to be cake keepers i i, I was at several relief society meetings where, where they came in and said it is your job to monitor the computers in the house for your sons and your husbands again totally totally ignoring that maybe daughters would look at sexual media right that this is only a man thing which is not true um and so when you're in the, when you're in the position of being a monitor that that that's not erotic. That's that's not tuning into your own drive and desire as a, as a female in this culture. Oh gosh, Bill, I don't even know what to say. I mean, I feel like there's five hundred thousand things I'd like to say about this, and I know that probably people are tired of hearing us, but <laughs> it's just so maddening to us, right? To me, how this happens, and and also, you know, I think a lot of people think that pornography is something new. We have we have sexual imagery in cave drawings. We have beautiful penises with ejaculation coming out and old old dildos from yeah. you know two hundred whatever a hundred thousand years, whatever it was, you know, ten thousand years beautiful ago. Depictions of vulvas and yeah. labia and and so no, we are sexually curious beings. Back to the pack animals, we are animals who are sexually curious for the most part. Of course, we have our asexual folks and gray sexual folks, but the majority of humans are sexually curious and we have to stop getting in the way so that we can sexually express in erotic, sensual ways that are pleasure-based and that we can enjoy not only the benefits of coupled sexuality, relational sexuality, but also our own relationships with ourselves. Yeah, we, we've been having sex long before we had stories about having sex, wow. uh, long before we, we came up with meanings and myths about what it means to do all those things in the ways that we do them. But uh, I want to, I want to leave off just giving you a chance to, for, for anybody who listened today and goes, man, I could, I could use some help. I'd like to know more about Natasha. I'd like to know more about what she's offering. Uh, where can folks find you? I, I, you know, I've got the website up here, natashahelfer.com. Um, but what other things would you say about how people can navigate your site as well as find out more about you or how you can help them? Yeah, thank you. So, I mean, there's there's kind of three ways that you can work with me. I mean, you can work with me individually as a couple, you know, or as an individual or as a family. So like one-on-one -on -one sessions. Um, I'm currently taking um, 
I'm currently open for clients uh, from a coaching lens. My therapy practice is pretty full right now, but my coaching practice is still has openings. Um, so that's one way or with one of my providers who I train, you know, and who I supervise. So that's why I have a group practice is because mm -hmm. there's so many therapists and, and mental health practitioners out there who are not trained in neither faith transitions nor healthy sexuality. And people can get a lot of misconceptions from other people who are trained kind of just in different ways and not trained in these particular areas. So that's why I started my group practice at working with me or one of my providers. Um, the second thing that I offer are groups. So we know that group settings can be incredibly healing. I started running groups only about three or four years ago. And I'm just like, why haven't I done this before? Like, there's something that a group can offer that me as an individual clinician cannot. And so I run groups, um, again, on religious trauma, on female, you know, reclaiming female sexuality. I run a group for males, sexual shame for those who have been through these addiction programs and they're needing to deconstruct from, from that kind of a thinking and really leaning into healthy sexuality and what that actually looks like. Um, I run groups for mixed orientation couples. We, you know, there's, so you can go to my group page. There's a ton of them that I, I even I'm running a group for ethical non-monogamy because there's so many people in post-Mormonism who are interested about uh, open marriage in regards to kind of the what ifs and we never got a chance to really sexually explore or, you know, now we've shifted all of our constructs on sexuality. And so lots of things, female sexual trauma, male sexual trauma, right? So, um, and retreats. So I do those too. So those are all kind of group settings. And then the other way that I can be helpful is that I am a supervisor for ASECT. So those of you who might be listening, who are therapists and who are interested in possibly going down a route where you get this type of training that I speak so highly about, <laughs> I can help you in that regard as well. So um, I'm also a speaker, an educator. I'm happy to come to your events. I've had several um, clinicians reach out from other group therapy practices wanting me to do training in their group practices. Um, so I'm, I'm here for it. I would love to help in whatever way I can. Um, I podcast regularly because I want to offer that for free, at least something I can offer for free. I do have um, every Wednesday, every first Wednesday of the month, I offer a free faith transitions uh, support group, uh, which is done both on Zoom and in person here in Holiday, Utah. So for those of you who are in the Salt Lake City area, you can come in person. For those of you who are not, you can join us online. And then if you sign up for my membership, then it's every Wednesday night we meet. But that first, I'm always cognizant. This is probably the charity part of me that's still very Mormon, of serving my community, of offering resources. I know not everybody has the means for, um, you know, paying for therapy or for coaching. Uh, so I want to be able to offer some resources that are just there for you. So that's my podcast. And this first Wednesday of the month, it's my free uh, faith transition support group. I love it. I uh, First off, thank you for your time today. I, I thought the conversation was just beautiful. I had so much fun this morning talking to you. <laughs> In part, if I'm honest, part of it's because we're talking about sex. But Of course. But, uh, <laughs> I love talking also, about sex too. <laughs> I just think you, you're so full of wisdom and experience that uh, I've admired you from afar and from up close and appreciate very much all that you, you give to this space of helping folks who stepped out of a very rigid way of framing the world and you're helping to give them the tools so that they can navigate a healthier, better second half of life. And from the bottom of my heart, thank you very much for your time today, Natasha. And I hope folks will check it out, natashahelfer.com. 
uh, check out the podcast, check out the groups and uh, take advantage of uh, a lifetime of experience that not the Natasha has to, to offer. So thank you so much. Uh, and I hope you have a great day. Thank you, Bill. I've been following you for a long time too. I think we always laugh about the first time I saw you. You were yeah. still, I think, a sitting bishop at the time. Very much believing sitting bishop. Yeah. Very believing. And you were, we were at, was it Kirtland? Kind of event. And I remember listening to you then and being grumpy with you a little bit, yeah. but, also, wasn't like, the but, also, but also recognizing that you were trying to nuance things, yeah. right? I didn't agree with everything you said at the time. And then I have followed your journey. I mean, we've all been on this journey together, right? And so I have a lot of respect and love for you, Bill. And thank you for all that you do for our community. Awesome. Thank you. Have a great day, Natasha. Bye-bye. <laughs>